Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. Today's guests are very special because they are my mentors, uh, Paul and Sandy Arnold, still my mentors. I still call them once in a while. We chat. Now it's more of a two-way conversation with us kind of sharing back and forth and uh, thinking about the bigger thoughts of farming and, and not so much as like how far apart do I plant onions, but Paul and Sandy have been farming in upstate New York for for over 30 years now, I believe. Um, Paul worked at a nursery greenhouse operation in his early 20s, and then he um, started farming by himself in his parents' backyard, actually. So he was one of the original urban farmers. Realizing that this was his real passion, Paul purchased 60 acres of land in Argyle in 1988. So that was technically the year after I was born, which is dating me. And then uh, Sandy met Paul uh, around that same time. I had a background in botany and had managed garden centers. So she had a great grasp on the retail side of things. So they established Pleasant Valley Farm together, got married, raised their two children, Robert and uh, Kim. And Robert actually is, uh, we've had him before on the talk about how they took their ordering system online. So there is kind of a little bit more of an extensive intro and uh, Paul and Sandy just honored that you're on with us tonight to uh, talk about all things farming. Hey, thank you, Michael. Yeah, Michael. And thank you for having us on this very special uh, podcast with you. Oh, well, it's, uh, it's we're honored. Yeah. Well, thank you. All right. So, okay. Give us a little bit more. I gave you a little bit of background, but Paul, give us a little bit of background of uh, talk about like what got you into farming. What got me into farming was while well, I grew up in suburbia and didn't think much about farming, but got exposure to it by my great uncle's uh, dairy farm, in which we would visit every summer when we were young. And that got it into my brain. But at the time that I grew up, uh, farming was not the thing to go into. It was kind of thing to run from. Mm-hmm. And so, but when I got into the nursery uh, business, it was really agriculture. And I enjoyed gr- raising plants and working greenhouses and, and, but it still didn't feel right. But, and I decided that at one point in my late, late 20s, I was going to take a trip across the United States and visit national parks in different states. And when I got out to Iowa, it was May and they were just plowing and planting. And it just like, oh my gosh, that's what I want to do. I want to farm. And on my way back, I stopped at a friend's house in Michigan and we went to a farmer's market. And that's what gave me the bug that I was going to raise vegetables, uh, be home with my family and uh, eat what ate on the table what what we grew and I was going to make a living I was very naive at that point <laughs> and that was way back in the 80s when I mean there was no internet well there was an internet but there was no YouTube there was no online anything around farming everything was books I mean there wasn't even really extension at that point uh, yeah, extension was around since the 1800s, but they were in our counties on that heavily dairy. So vegetables were not carried very well. They were down in lower counties, uh, uh, lower Hudson Valleys, where, they, where there was extensive vegetable growing like onions, but not up in our way above north of Albany. So 
yes, there was no internet. So yeah, you had books, you had uh, some conferences, you had other farmers around that you could talk to, but nobody was really making it. And, and everyone was just starting up. I mean, the organic movement just started at that point. And so information was pretty uh, scarce and we all were sharing a lot or that, or you didn't know anything. So uh, that's how information got around. Yeah. And then Paul, you actually bought a 60 acre farm, which has good land on it. There's some sections, but it's not when you say 60 acres, there's not that much tillable land to actually farm. Correct. Uh, I, I was looking for a piece of land that was not going to say a little bit remote, but I had a view that, I, that my farm was going to be small anyway. So there was about three to four acres that were actually tillable out of the 60, but it had a big stream on it that I thought was important. It also was uh, southeast facing, which I liked and had northwest protection of trees. It was a little remote and it uh, had good soils and, and drainage. So it was up on a hill. So all the frost went down below. And I thought, oh, here's a, here's a piece of land that I thought would do it. But also I, it was just a part of a larger farm. It was just some fields out of a larger farm. So I just bought land. And then from there we had to build anything we have, we had to build because it was just land and some, uh, and a stream. Mm -hmm. Now, Sandy, when you joined Paul, uh, Paul had been already farming for a, a little bit. Yes. He had been farming in his parents' backyard and he actually farmed with another farmer, a uh, local farmer, a conventional farmer for one year. Mm -hmm. And I was managing garden centers and doing all kinds of business stuff and doing a bunch of stuff. And uh, I met him about the time that he bought this land. And then I, you know, worked with him a little bit uh, on the land to make sure that I really wanted to be a farmer. Mm -hmm. And I always, my goals in life, as I kept working for other people was that I knew I wanted to work for myself. And cause I was very driven to do things correctly. And I just, I knew I wanted to work for myself and I just wanted to be outdoors a lot. Okay. So talk, uh, push in on that a little bit. You just said something, you worked with him on the land a little bit to make sure is what you wanted to do too, because we see a lot of farmers decide they want to farm. It's one of the couple that really wants to farm. The other one really doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And there's so much synergy when you have two people pulling in the same direction and making, you know, pulling the cart forward instead of, you know, just one person trying to do it with the other person, you know, going all over the place. Yeah. And I think actually Paul had said that he was not going to marry me unless we did a year or so farming to make sure that I really wanted to be a farmer's, farmer's wife or a farmer myself. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, it's not easy, but mm -hmm. I can't imagine doing this. We've talked a lot about what would happen if, you know, something happened to one of us, we probably wouldn't continue farming because it is something that we both do. We both have our strengths and just, it just works great having two of us. We've seen a lot of operations that's just one person. And I think it's, it's more challenging. We've always felt very, uh, blessed that you know we do farm together and we do really well together as a team and that's i think a lot of what has given us our success okay so you farm together but you both have very different roles in the business talk about kind of for paul what you focus on and then sandy kind of where, where your role is uh my role is to lift heavy things and sandy's is to do all the smart stuff 
(laughs) (laughs) So it's a little more than lifting just heavy things. So you're more the outside field manager, correct? I do a lot more of what goes on just day-to-day operation with the crew and and, uh, decisions on what's being harvested and what's getting planted where. So I, I do, as I said, a lot of that day-to-day operation stuff, you know, anything to do with running the tractors or being with the crew every day, you know, whereas when we make decisions, uh, say we make decisions on, you know, a, a lot of things that go on around here of how something's going to get planted or where, uh, we do it together in that. And then I go out and, uh, you know, get it done. Mm-hmm. All right. Andy can help with certain things like go out and uh, till the area whether I want to plant it or something like that you know we we share in that responsibility but she's a lot more uh, involved in the book work of what goes on around here and all the record keeping yeah and and a lot of the research too like when a new piece of equipment's being bought it's sandy the one who's calling around getting the best deal making sure that's going to fit what you're doing and then together you make the decision if it's a great good fit or not for the farm right she just runs it by me on what she's found because she likes to research stuff and make phone calls and i would rather not be on a phone at all (laughs) yes i I, I don't want to go to stores (laughs) And then it's even tough to have you get it, get you to pick it up. (laughs) Yes. Uh, yes. Yep. He hates shopping. So So, Sandy, talk a little bit about your role too in the business, because it's a very important role of kind of your, the kind of make the the business run forward. Obviously the farm has like, like the the crops need harvested and stuff needs planted and row cover needs put on, but there's also obviously the, the, the actually the inside side that needs done i mean payroll and the books and yeah and i i i am very happy that i finally do have another bookkeeper i had a bookkeeper for several years um a younger gal that uh did books and then i didn't have her because she got married for a few years so finally this year i have a bookkeeper again and that i have to say is like one of the best things for any business is to just have a bookkeeper to help with some of that stuff to keep it going especially during the busy the busy months. So she can come in, you know, five, five hours every other week or so, and just take care of payroll and things like that. But over the years, um, I've done probably 90% of that and, you know, keep the books up. Uh, I, I do research things to death before we buy things. And we do have a lot of people that call us and say, okay, I need this. And I know you've already researched it. So you just tell me what the best thing is. (laughs) Uh I was definitely one of those people. But at the same time, I am outside a lot. Um, this year, I've been outside a crazy amount of time. Uh, but typically, over the years, I would say I'm outside at least 50% of the time and, and insert inside 50. Uh, so I, I am out a lot. I've done a lot of, I do tractor work with the smaller tractors. I do a lot of the tilling, as Paul mentioned. Um, I've done seedings, you know, for years and years, do a lot of the, uh, the weekly or biweekly seedings. I, I've been running the greenhouse quite a bit. And years ago, I did the wash pack more. And this year, I'm back doing some of the wash pack on one day a week. So things flex every year, just depends on where I'm needed. Uh, I actually even drive the big tractor once in a while. (laughs) Okay. So with that flex too, and that always comes with like what your team looks like, because you guys have over the years run an incredibly lean team. That's one of the things I've always appreciated and watched you guys is just how low your labor percentage of your business is. Obviously, as you've gotten older and you've added more, um, like some of these larger roles in the business, that labor has creeped up. But you know, for years, you ran it incredibly lean. 
Yeah, our labor always was in the 20s. Yeah, it was usually around hovering around 25 to 27%. Yeah. And realize that that did not include me, but it included my wife and kids and all the employees. Yeah. Because okay. we're a sole proprietor, so we're set up and yes. Paul, do Paul doesn't take a, 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 paycheck. a paycheck on yes. that. So, and I think part of it is just that Paul and I put in so many hours. That's, that's, that's part of it. You know, a hundred hour weeks is, is pretty standard, I think. And that's probably standard for a lot of farmers, but especially in the startup years, you know, it was yes. long, long, long hours. We always ate dinner at nine or 10 at night, which seems to be what we did this year too. Uh, <laughs> so, but we've always had really great team. We've used a lot of homeschoolers for labor. We have a family nearby. Cause we were homeschoolers. Uh, yeah. Cause we homeschooled our kids and it gives us that flexibility to get kids to help in September. You know, they can get their schooling done whatever days so they could help us out on our busy, our busy days. And so we had a lot of, uh, one family in particular through our church has uh, 14 kids or something. And so they kind of step up the, the ladder when they turn 12, they're legal to work and we can have them on the farm. And uh, they usually here from seven to eight years on average. Yeah. Okay. So we keep them a long time, and yeah, uh, and interns. We've had interns, of course, as you know. So that's been a big part of our farm because we love to teach, we love to train, we want to create new farmers, and so we've had a lot of interns over the years as well. Now, and one of the things with that is when you built your house, the second phase was building an apartment for interns so that you could house them for very cheap. So yep. it made it made it a lot easier to have those interns around, even for short periods. Yeah, we have a two-bedroom apartment over the garage that we built. It's all furnished, and yes, years and years we we usually ran anywhere from two to three interns, and especially when we started doing year-round production on our farm back around 2005, 2006. It, it really helped us to keep workers year-round and give them a place to, to live. And we had, we had international quite a bit, uh, mm -hmm. in the nineties, nineties, we had international workers. So that was always kind of fun. And but building a, building an apartment was also part of our principles of building this farm is to invest in things that were going to pay off for a long time and pay back well. So the investment of putting an apartment in would help us with labor over the next 20, 30 years. So it was worth it. And we, we've done a lot of things of paying, paying up front to save over the long haul. Yes. Yeah. So back to the employees, because one of the things too about your employees is there's never, there's no moss growing on their shoes. I mean, they're moving around the farm. You're keeping them active. And I remember one time I came to you and it was like, I was having problems keeping my people motivated and getting work out of them. And I think there was something you said, they said, this is, you know, if someone's not working hard, this is actually how I say it to them. So they understand that they got to step up the pace. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think, well, when I got working for the nursery greenhouse, I'd never been in charge of anybody. And one thing I got told right off the bat was it, when you have, well, one is when your men are around, you work with them. When they go home, then you get on the tracker. So the other thing, what they told me was it's a come on and not a go on. So that means that I'm going to be out front, setting the pace, showing them how to work, giving them ideas that, you know, this isn't just something that I'm going to, you know, throw you on and I'm going to go do the better work. 
we're going to do this all together. And we're going to, uh, as I said, I'm going to set the pace. Yeah. Is that what you're referring to? Well, that, and then the other thing you said was, um, you know, for this farm to be profitable, we need to be able to harvest X pounds of lettuce or X pounds of green beans or weed three rows an hour. And if you can't set, if you can't make that, then our farm can't be profitable and you can't work here. It was something along those lines. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's Wait. a, that's the thing you empower them with what the reasoning is for why we're going fast and what we're doing and why we're doing it. And then they get an idea of how fast they should go because of why they need to do it. And that's empowering them with that information. It isn't just something I keep inside me. I let them know that, you know, if you're not picking fast enough, then we're not making enough money to make it worthwhile. And it also empowers them when they go out and pick something themselves and they get to the beans and they're pretty well picked over and they say, you know, we're not, they'll, they'll text me back and say, we're not picking enough beans here in a half an hour to make it worthwhile. What do you think I should do? See, they already know this and that, and, that, mm-hmm. and they help me to make decisions that no, it's not worth picking those beans. Yeah. We, we've rarely ever fired anybody. We pretty much, they have to figure out that that's not a good fit for them. And I think a lot of times when you hire somebody, if, especially if they've never worked on a farm before, it has to be very clear that farming isn't for everybody. And, you know, it may not work for you. Let's give it a couple of weeks, but, you know, feel free to give us a notice if, you, if, it's, if it's not right for you, because we, we expect a lot out of our workers, because we are pretty driven to have our farm be profitable. We don't want to work all these hours and not be able to have the lifestyle that we want. Yeah. And now when you started, you actually worked for other local farmers. Um, and, and part of that was to learn what you didn't want to do, correct? Well, I worked for one farm in particular because he was the bigger vegetable farm around. He was uh, luckily just around the corner and had a good name. And he was doing a good job, but it was uh, some things that he did that I learned what I, you know, more or less what I didn't want to do with my farm. Uh, like I didn't want black plastic on my farm after I spent, uh, you know, the fall picking it all up by <laughs> my <laughs> acres of it. So that was the kind of things you learn what you didn't want to do. And I also learned I didn't want to grow conventionally. I wanted to grow organically. So there was, yeah, there was a bunch of things that I learned, but he was a very good marketer. And I understood and saw that and learned from that. And also he was, a, you know, a decent grower. And so you know, there's a lot of things that I picked up, but yeah. I think whenever you're working for somebody, you're picking up what you don't want. You Now you know what you don't want to do and what you do want to do. Both are extremely important. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's move a little bit to talk about like the management principles because that's what's made you successful. And why don't we actually give people an idea of how successful you have been because you've been farming, the farm has been your sole income for now 30 years plus? Uh, in 92 is when we went from We started in 88 and we had to build buildings and a house and everything else. And by 92, we had turned this, you know, startup farm from making no money to giving us an income that we have never had to work off this farm since 92. Yes. And then last year, you guys actually took a kind of long cruise. So tell us about that. Well, I don't know if it was last year, but it was last (laughs) January. We, yeah. we tried to, we, tried to uh, we, we planned it. We planned it. It's been planned for about three years because it, it was huge. It was, it's hard to leave the farm because we're year round, but our family committed to helping us because so the workers, Kim and Peyton are still here helping. And the workers that we've had for years, they all committed to being here because we were supposed to be gone for four months. We were going to leave 
January 3rd, and we were not going to be back until the first week of April. So it was a Viking Ocean uh, World Cruise. And maybe it was the first week of May. Yeah, all of April. That's right. First week of May, we were going to be back. And so lo and behold, of course, our great COVID that hit. Uh, so we only got to see half of the ports before everything started going haywire. But we had a fantastic time. Everybody did great running the farm while we were gone. And uh, we'll have to go back and do it again sometime because we missed we missed the whole half of the part that we really wanted to see Egypt and Thailand and mm -hmm. China. Uh all that, all that whole area, India and all of those, we did not see that. We ended in Indonesia and they flew us home from Dubai. Okay. So when you're talking about the fact that we did that, and yes, our farm is profitable enough to have afforded a trip like that and, you know, still saving for our retirement and had funded all of our kids' retirements. Yeah. So and I think yeah. And you've done all the infrastructure. I mean, you've got multiple barns. You've got a, a great, one of the, as Chris Callahan says, the best gap compliant washing, wash and pack or FISMA compliant wash and pack. Um, you know, a beautiful house, 334, 30 by 144 high tunnels, um, great propagation greenhouses, great equipment. So you've invested probably a million dollars into the business. Uh, since 2002, I know I kept track of it since that point, and we've invested over three quarters of a million. All of it paid for, all of it with 0% on credit cards. Okay, so let's talk about that, because a lot of people say, <laughs> don't use credit cards, but how did you leverage them? Well, we did one, We did a couple of things. Let's, let's say our last thing we did, or say last one of the bigger things, we, we, when we redid this wash pack that Chris Callahan was talking about, we basically got a 0% credit card. And what we did is you tell them, you know, the gross of the farm. So when you tell them that, they give you a large amount on the credit card that you can uh, charge. And so anybody who would take the credit card uh, when we're buying supplies and, or workers, whatever, you know, people working for us, if they would take it, then we would, you know, fill it up. And then from there, we cash flowed the rest of it. And we cash flowed the rest, you know, as we went, but then we were paid off the 0% credit card by, we did it over the winter. And by the next fall, we had the 0% credit card paid for. So we basically cash flowed $65,000 of improvements to the wash pack. So this okay. is the kind of things of how we do it. Now, back years ago, we used to be able to get 0% credit cards that would go for a year. And then you would get a 0% balance transfer with no fees. That went on for a number of years. And we used to just use those to death and just keep you know, cash flowing, making it easier to cash flow things that we wanted. And that's how we paid no interest on three quarters of a million dollars worth of improvements. But that also takes starting with really good credit because you guys have been, that was one of the things you talked to me about when I was younger. I was like, go out and get a credit card and just make sure you pay it off. So you get that credit in you know, the 750s, 800 range, because that means you can get these higher quality credit cards. Yes. Yeah, we're in there. We're in the 800 somewhere in our credit Yeah, I think it's always important to anybody starting out or, you know, anybody just, you know, build some credit you know, get things out there and uh, make sure you keep your credit up. That's so important. But yes, that's how we've, that's how we've done it. But we, that's, uh, you know, being able to cash flow things or buying them at the right time is uh, the credit cards have definitely helped us to do that. But I think it's also, I think a real key thing too, Michael, is 
you know, as you're starting out or even as the years go by, I mean, we do this every year. As a matter of fact, we just sat down with Robert to say, what are we going to spend some money on this year? And you want to buy things that give you the biggest bang, especially in the beginning years. And so we constantly were sitting down and saying, okay, what do we, what does this farm need next? And, you know, the early years, it's, it was uh, irrigation, you yes. know, irrigation. We did it over two years. It cost us $15,000. Uh, 7,000 one year, 8,000 the next. But the following year, we realized how valuable that was because our gross jumped $30,000 because we were able to water things uh, like they're supposed to be. So yeah. try to make those decisions. Uh, yeah, for we're we facing that of, uh, yeah, putting in a hundred gallon a minute well next year. And that's going to be about 15,000. So yeah, the reason we have that information is because we kept records. And from there, well, those records, you can make intelligent decisions for what was the thing that was really holding the farm back the most. Okay. So let's talk record keeping because that is incredibly important. Now, uh, do you guys still, uh, do you even have a crop plan? Because I know most of it's in Paul's head. <laughs> uh, no, we do a crop plan. It's just, uh, it lists out all the different fields. We have a very diverse fields here, as you know, uh, yes. different world types. And a lot of times our crop plan that we create in, in uh, January uh, doesn't come to fruition because of how the spring goes. It's too wet. So we have to jungle, jungle things around. But we typically have a four to five year rotation uh, on, our, on our fields if we can with, with all the major crops. We're very diverse, as you know. So we grow, I don't know, 40, 50 different types of vegetables. So uh, the, the crop rotation is really important to do. Yeah, yeah. Michael, it was mostly done in my head and I made decisions on when it was, but what happened was, you know, we, uh, Sandy got it down on the computer of all where everything was over the years because it was all in my head and I, I gave it to her. And then from there, what, what came to that point also was the same thing was that Kim started to really get involved in the farm and how it ran and what the plant, and she got involved in trials and she got involved in varieties. And so what happened was that we would now sit down in January as a family and decide where things are going. So it isn't just me anymore making mm -hmm. all these decisions. It's more of a family sitting down and putting out a plan. And they also got to the point of where Kim is now uh, she does the whole seeding. Well, she she decides on all the varieties and buys from the seed companies. I don't even we don't even know what we're planting anymore because she takes care of that whole part of it while I'm running other parts. So it's really a family operation in that sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with record keeping though, the, the the one sheet that's like the magic sheet is the market sheets, and so that's what lists what comes and goes. And you're referring to the year, the previous year, and the previous week. So talk to us a little bit about that. So the spreadsheets uh, we do, they used to just be on paper and then we moved to an iPad, which was um, monumental for Paul who never had a, a, a cell phone or anything. So that was uh, major to get him to switch over to some of that. So we use iPads now in the wash pack and it's uh, all populated Robert's thing all automatically loads up what we sold the week before and uh, and so we can make really good decisions as to what we're going to harvest for that week, that market, and we keep track of what's left over. Uh, so Robert, uh, I know you mentioned him. You've had him uh, in there before. He uh, has a degree from 
oncology. He runs his own business. So he loves all of this technology uh, stuff and helps us tremendously with all of these things. I think that was one thing I wanted to make sure that people understood that it's so much easier to farm now because of technology and what's available out there for us to, yes. to, uh, to, to use the iPads, the spreadsheets, the Google the drive, all those fun things. Yeah. The monet, the cameras, just being able to see and, and go and say like, what temperature was it a month ago? And being able to just go oh, look yeah. at that. All the monitoring equipment. It's just, I, I mean, it's just, it's just pretty, pretty amazing. But it also yeah. works because of in-house tech support. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, you have to realize that when you have all these people that don't like myself who don't really know how to use this, you got somebody in the house. Again, our family has a lot of strengths, and yeah. with that, uh, Robert has been able to, you know, he put together the whole uh, sheet for the market. So with that sheet, not only does it help us with making decisions on what's going, but it also tallies every bag of spinach that was uh, was uh, sold that year. And that's what we get out of it is our yields of, of yes. things are. Whether so, are out of the fields, we are able to push buttons and get all this information. So when you remember, Michael, back years and years ago when growing for market, uh, you know, she put out that one article about uh, amount that a crop should make per acre. Mm -hmm. we, we just latched right onto that. And that was like the most perfect thing. And back then it was like every crop should make at least $10,000 an acre. Well, <laughs> now, now we're probably more like you know each each crop should make you know twenty thousand an acre minimum. Uh, minimum yeah in order to grow it so, so actually Sandy the only crop that makes less than forty thousand at farmers market prices I think is corn and melons uh, yep that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that was, that was so key for us because, you know, that was the, the, so the couple metrics that Paul was always drilling into our heads was, um, you know, I think at that point you were saying 30,000. Um, you said you wanted to make 30,000 and then you want to make at least $30 an hour harvesting that crop. So those are the mm -hmm. two big metrics that you gave uh -huh. us. Um, yeah. But then obviously the other thing too, for those weekly spreadsheets for like how much to bring the market, it was, okay, so what did we sell last week? Because it's always going to see what the trend is, the current trend is, and then what sold last year. Because like if it's um, Memorial Day weekend, you may be up on some things and down on others. And the most ex one of the most expensive things on any farm is the harvesting. So if you're not harvesting, packing, washing, the crops sit in the field, it's costing you very little. Right. Yep. So we, uh, we have it down pretty good. We can usually peg within 20 heads of lettuce how much we're going to sell. You, you know what the weather's doing. I think you just kind of get a feel for it over time. And we write the weather down on all the sheets. So we know what the weather was at the time. You kind of look, it's like, wow, why did we, why did we come home with so much spinach that day? And you look, oh yeah, the weather wasn't great. So I think that's a, that's a key part of it as well. Yeah, actually now Sandy, we are with the farmers we work with, we do dollars per square foot per week. That's the metric we're at now. Oh, cool. Okay. So because the thing like a tomato, yes, it makes you a lot of money, but it's in the ground for an awful long time. Mm -hmm. Right. A radish is not in the ground for very long, but it actually makes you a heck of a lot of money. So it's actually more profitable than uh, some some tomato crops I've seen, which is kind of blows my mind when you kind of think about that. But yes, yeah, the inputs are pretty small. Yes, and the labor on radishes is like nothing. You cultivate once and you're done. So um, I think if you were to run the labor calculations with that, it would far exceed tomatoes. 
So let's talk a little bit about irrigation because you mentioned that a little bit, how your in, your your income went up 30,000. Talk us through like how the system is set up. And that's actually changed recently because you added um, some major filtration not too long ago. Well, on the home farm back in 91, we built a pond and on the lower fields. And then the next year we put in the irrigation system, which included a, a, uh, deep well submersibles stuck into the pond and then pumped up to the uh, to our fields through a series of just turning a switch on and off and then valves that would open and uh, open the laterals up. So each field could be done separately. The, uh, yeah, for the most part it was underground and then it would, uh, the laterals would be above ground. So then when we, we rented the farm next door, that, uh, had its own irrigation system because there was no electricity down there. And we ended up with a, now have a diesel, uh, a big diesel engine pump that's down there and it pumps three, 400 gallons a minute. And that's all run through aluminum pipe, but it's pretty much still, we don't move it around once it's set up, it's like permanent where, wherever it is. And so that has, you know, the two of them, um, uh, do very well. Everything down there is also set on valves. I think the I think the key thing with our irrigation, and this is what I learned when I when I worked at that uh, nursery. Mm-hmm. I did. I some days I did six eight hours of hand watering, and I was always like, "Let me hook up an automatic system," and they never would let me do it. And so that was the one thing I said to Paul. I said, "As soon as I get on this farm, I am not hand watering. We are going to set up a really great system." And my dad was an engineer, and he actually helped engineer the whole irrigation system for the farm, so we can run three sprinklers at once with the uh, is it five horsepower submersible out of out of the pond. So, and we can, we run each cycle on two hours and we can irrigate the whole, the, our whole main farm in, in, in less, in like three days or less. And all we do is flip a couple of valves in the hedgerows where, where, the, where the lines are and the main switch is in the barn. So we have a really simple, easy system. People, I know a lot of farmers don't irrigate because they can't afford the time to do it. And because ours is all kind of a, a permanent system and we do uh, i know he mentioned the aluminum and one thing that we've done over the years and we actually messed it up this year um when we put crops in the fields that have to have the aluminum pipe we put straw underneath the pipe we try to plan to have like zucchini or yellow squash because we use a lot of hay and -hmm. straw mulch uh on our fields uh, and so we try to put those irrigation lines where it, there's going to be uh, a long season crop with straw. So we don't yeah. ever move that. Well, and it saves, there's no weeds. You don't have to move it. It just makes it a lot simpler. Now, Correct. the other thing with the pond is, so you that Paul talked about the, the, the creek or the river you have. So you have basically a little tiny pump in the river that pumps into your pond to keep your pond full. And then from your pond, you pump up to the, the farm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we had a pretty dry year this year and we have that, we put that transfer pump, like you were just saying, down into that stream. And so whenever it wasn't pumping water, you know, onto the fields, we were pumping and refilling the pond and keeping the pond full. And that's also where we draw water from on our neighbor's farm where we rent to give us more acreage. Not that we need more acreage, but we need better rotation mm-hmm. on our crops. So we're still growing the same amount of acreage, but it's just the fact that we can rest land better. 
Yeah. Okay. Let's move into marketing because that's, I think, uh, when we started, Paul, you told me you have to first be a good marketer, then a good business person, and finally a good farmer. Is that kind of the same? Yeah. The growing on the end is always the easiest part. It's running a business and making money at it. And, but also, uh, the first part being the, the best marketer because everything you do on the farm, uh, marketing drives it. Why do you plant this? Why do you plant this now? Why do you space it this way? So it gets to be a certain size because that's what your market calls for. So all those decisions come back to marketing. And as long as you're paying attention to your customer, then sales come in on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. So talk about your marketing. How have you been set up with that? Well, as I said, when I first got it going, I got interested in farmer's markets. And I think, you know, when you're going to be a small farmer, selling retail is paramount. And so that worked out for me. I knew that I, I sold to a few restaurants and a few other wholesale things and saw the price you were getting. And I thought, okay, that's not where I want to head because uh, I had a view of staying small. So the farmer's market did well in our areas. They're, uh, they're strong. They're, they're, you know, thousands of people would come through them. And so the Saratoga and Guns Falls market. So we latched onto them. And from there, I was one of the few that were still selling lettuce and everything else. Everybody else was selling, you know, peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers and melons. And so I was growing a lot of different things like beets and carrots and lettuce and spinach. And from there, the people really responded. And I just had to learn how to be consistent, you know, when you first got going. And so that's what, uh, it, but, but it was that those, those consistent sales that I was worried about and caring about. So I cared about my customers and in turn, they cared about me and, and they would, uh, they put me first whenever they would walk in the farmer's market, they come see what we have and then they go to other people. Okay. So consistency, talk to us about that because that is something, uh, I mean, during the season, you would have lettuce every single week of a 26 week farmer's market. Yes, and that was a drive because we, we saw that there were sales, you know, really stronger in the summer, but there was opportunities in the early spring. So we set up um, low tunnels or what do you want to call them? We call them field houses back in the early, <laughs> early 90s. 90s yeah. It wasn't a real name then. And so we would put them up in the fall so that we could start planting in March in them and then have full-size head lettuce and spinach by May 1st. And so we would capture the market. And then that would also, uh, we would push the sales all the way to the end of October through uh, row covers and sometimes putting up small tunnels to protect them all the way to the end of the season. But meanwhile, you know, during the summer, we learned very well that, you know, even though the heat of the summer, which, you know, we're very Northern, so it's not that hot, but the, you know, having uh, abundant water, you know, helped them not be stressed out when it got to 90 and also giving them plenty of organic matter and nitrogen made the lettuces grow and be consistent during the summer and finding all these varieties that were that would uh, handle the heat of the summer and the cold of May and the, you know, the, the varying weather come October. So these kind of things I was very interested in because people had expectations very quickly that I was going to have lettuce every week. So I knew that I had to do something to have a long season that would give me consistent income also. Okay, and then you added the winter side. <laughs> well, what happened was our markets used to open from May 1st till the end of October. And we were, you know, back in 98, saw that we had a lot of stuff left over and we had a big sign up from our customers and we made a delivery in November. 
outside of the market because it already closed and realized that not realizing that we were that close to Thanksgiving and it, uh, oh my gosh, the average $7 order went to an average $30 order. And it just blew our minds that this opportunity we were missing out on when you think about that fact that the, the, the biggest food day of the whole year was Thanksgiving and we were closing at the end of October. That seemed kind of ridiculous. So I got, we basically got the whole market associations to stay open till the Saturday before Thanksgiving. And then from there, about that time, there was a lot of farmers who were starting up with cheese and eggs and meat and they needed outlets. And so they were asking, well, why can't we just keep going? And that, that's when it started about 2005, 2004, they started uh, pushing through the winter in a building. And then they were uh, kind of asking us, our customers, and people always ask me like, well, how'd you get into winter growing? I said, because our customers knew that these markets were going and they looked at me and they said, well, you are going to be there, aren't you? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> <right."> you know? <laughs> that was no pressure, you know? So that's when I thought, okay, we got to start doing something. And so 2006, we put up a high tunnel. We had been growing in low tunnels up to that point, uh, but we put up a high tunnel and uh, started growing some things on our greenhouse benches. And it just started, to, and we had a root cellar to begin with. And we just uh, stored stuff and started selling. And we're like, oh, this is good. And that it just took off, you know, our consistency or being able to uh, grow lettuce during the summer or any other vegetable, you know, we had to learn and through a lot of collaborating with different, different farmers in the area like yourself and a few others, we, um, the mistakes were made, but we're very, mm -hmm. you know, we all learned from each other and we positively moved ahead. And uh, within a few years, winter growing became a real force to where our sales were to the point of they were almost higher in the winter than they were in the summer. Yeah. yeah. So probably 50%. Yeah. It's our sales are pretty even on the six months in the winter versus the six months in the summer. The one key point um, I wanted to make on this is that, you know, that winter production in high tunnels, I know Michael, you were part of that movement and Slack hollow uh, you know, several of us were doing these tunnels and it, there just wasn't anybody out there that really knew what they were doing. And so we spent 10 years perfecting how to do winter production. And it's funny when you go back and we look at our numbers as we do presentations and stuff at, you know, how much we made in, in winter, in one winter tunnel in the very beginning and then we could every year we got it better and better and better and better so mm -hmm. i think people now it's it's so much easier to get into you know doing production like that because uh, there's a lot of us that made all those errors and tried to figure out the best way to do it and, and lost a lot of crops <laughs> we lost a lot in the early years yes but and, and uh, shared all that and we and we shared everything and uh yeah so i think it's uh it's a great time, time to get into farming and you can certainly make a lot of money at it. You can. All right. So talk to us a little bit about, you talked about the sharing of information. So Sandy, you've been really on, you know, these, the conferences, you've helped do the frozen ground conference and, uh, and obviously also being on the board or the committee for the New England vegetable growers. So talk to us about kind of the education side. All right. Well, Paul and I have been real big on, you know, teaching, mentoring, just, you know, really wanting to help the agricultural movement, especially for small farms, you know, making farmers, you know, profitable. And so we've done a lot of conferences. We do a lot of presentations. I've run a networking group of farmers 
wow, since I guess the nineties. Uh, I know you and I have talked a little bit about, you know, once you, once you farm a lot and you're kind of up, you know, where, you know, a lot, it's harder to learn more. So the way to do it is to, you know, run conferences with just, uh, really expert farmers. So that's where the frozen ground came out that we developed the frozen ground had Elliot Coleman. And I got like 24 mm-hmm. top winter growers invite them in and we can all just network. And, you know, we love networking with farmers. I think that's a real key way for all of us to learn from yeah. each other. Well, that's the one thing about the frozen ground conference is it's so much fun because you've got 24 amazing growers It's invite only. And, you know, we had an hour and a half or two hour session on fertility and there were so many different ideas thrown around and different discussion items. And it's just, bec- I still think there's so much we don't understand, even when you're at that highest level of, of, you know, being, you know, some of the top growers in that room. Oh, definitely. And each year we try to, you know, we run it every other year. We try to invite new people, different people. And there's so many, so many ideas that come out and there's so much to learn over a two year period of things that you can, you can trial and mm-hmm. new products that are out. Uh, all of the, um, what's the underground heat? Oh, radiant heat. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the, uh, oh, the climate battery. Climate battery, that was fascinating. And more yep. people are putting that in. I know Sir Decker's putting, I think, one of those in. So it's just, yeah, it's great. And and we do a lot of research and trials on our farm. We do tons of farm visits. Any place we go, we always want to do farm farm visits. I think it's just a fantastic way to learn something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and most farmers will let you come on as long as you're willing to work with them. I mean, obviously, a lot of farmers don't want to, you know, if you're coming in the middle of the work week, say, I want you to take two hours and show me around. But if you say, hey, can I come work with you for a day and kind of like get the tour as I work, they're most, most of them are fine with that. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And then we can see their systems and then we can, we can give ideas to them and they give us ideas of theirs. Uh, I, I think it's just the, the, the actual you know, best way to, you know, improve your own farm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So with the education that's actually gotten you around the country. So you've seen a lot of the different, uh, I remember like out, we went out, did the comp- conference out in Missouri a couple of years, which was a lot of fun. Yep. Um, and then we, yes, yeah, so that one was fun. And then I'm just trying to think Moses, you got me invited to Moses right when I was first getting started. And that was a lot of fun to go out there and present at that conference. Cause that was, it's probably one of the biggest conferences I presented at. Yeah, yeah. there's a, there's a lot of them. Pasa, Mafka conferences. Uh, we've gone up to Canada a lot, so we uh-huh. we go up that way, and and uh, work with them. Uh, uh, we work- also got you to go to some of the better farms out in the Midwest. Yes. Uh, oh my gosh, Harmony Valley, um, Featherstone. Yes. Yeah, and they're just uh, amazing farms. We, we've worked uh, a lot with through extension and trials, as you said, uh, Bejo Seeds. We do a lot with Bejo Seeds. We've, we were invited to go over to their annual open house over in Amsterdam in Holland. And that was, oh my gosh, what an amazing learning experience that was for four days to go out and see all their trials. And uh, there's just so many opportunities out there for, for farmers to, you know, learn and gain expertise. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, make money. I mean, the thing about, obviously we love the lifestyle and then Paul, you said at the beginning, you wanted to be at home working with your family, but also it's a great lifestyle and it's good money. 
Yes. Um, yeah, all, all along those those lines. I think to be profitable, I mean, we, we started out, Paul and I were very much on the same page and we wanted to have a good lifestyle. We both love to travel. I probably like to travel more than Paul does, but when I drag him places, he always has a great time. And, <laughs> um, but we always wanted to put money away for retirement because farming, as you know, doesn't, doesn't give you an automatic retirement. So we've been doing IRAs and we encourage that even with the young kids that work on our farm now that are teenagers, we're like, you know, put some money away. I mean, you start running those calculators um, and it shows, you know, how much money you can make. So our kids, when they were very young, starting, I think at age like five, we started putting, we put them on the books and we would uh, just put money into IRAs for them. And I think we did a thousand dollars a year. And I think if you do $1,000 a year for four years when they're that age, and if you never touched it again, they'd have a million dollars when they retire. So we kept up that $1,000 a year from their pay uh, every year until they were old enough to, you know, like going off to college or whatever. And so I think they've really appreciated that. And it's a great way. And, mm -hmm. and the same for us, you know, for us to do our, our own IRAs and uh, and keep that, uh, the money going on that. I think that's a really key thing for people to do investments and not mm. just IRAs, but also regular investments. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's stay on the topic of finance here and talk about equipment because that's the other thing is you've invested heavily in, you know, tractors, machinery. I mean, you have beautiful sprinters that you use for your market. Talk to us about like, why does that make sense for a farm? Plan A is always important. <clears throat> You know, and if things are always working correctly and if you're keeping them up, we have a person who is coming in every year and goes through with a fine tooth comb all of our equipment so that we don't break down during the summer. And that also, uh, of course, helps with resale if we ever, we've only sold a few tractors in all of our time. But for the most part, uh, getting what we need for the farm has been very important to, I said, make the work easier as we get older and also to, uh, to get things done that we need done. So I think you said something key there is that the equipment works when you need it because yep. it's good equipment and you're taking care of it. Um, because I think that's something that it's, a, it's the hidden cost of, of, of breakdowns. People just do not understand what that actually is costing them. But when you're like going out to start the tractor and it doesn't start, that is, you know, you don't get the, don't get the lettuce planting in and when you don't get the lettuce planting in, you, did, you don't get to harvest the lettuce, which means there's a gap in your sales, which means your customers are disappointed, which means they're going to go to the grocery store. Correct. That's when you, you were looking at your customers and they have decisions when they're standing in the grocery store. They're going to make a decision of, oh, gee, while I'm here, I need lettuce. But they could say that and say, oh, well, Paul has it sometimes, but he doesn't have it. So while I'm here, I might as well get it. Or they could say, oh, I need lettuce. Oh, well, I should get it at the market because Paul always has lettuce. So I'll, I'll wait till I get it there because it's better. So I want them to say the latter. I want them to always say, well, they always have it. So that, it, uh, so that my consistent sales and my consistency of having the product is, uh, is better for them and me with, with, uh, over the long haul. Uh -huh, uh -huh, absolutely. And um, we, did start, we started out, Michael, I think uh, it's important to realize that when we started out, we had very inexpensive used equipment. We didn't start out farming by spending tons and tons of money. We stayed within our means, uh, had, you know, 
older equipment, but yeah. main, maintained it to keep it going. And I do remember a farmer that we talked to a lot that we did try to tell him to stop buying old, old used junk trucks, but he didn't <laughs> do much and constantly was breaking down. Yes, yes. Well, we did have that one field truck, which yes, we would buy the older field trucks. And uh, you're right, they, they would last a year or two and then they would go to the junkyard because they literally broke in half. <laughs> um, thing of when you're when you buy something good you have it for years and you're not spending your time looking for another one yeah you know you have it for such a long time that you're now your your time spent is on on plants not on equipment or or uh, buildings but our markets are also very close they're only a 30 minute drive so we put very few miles on our sprinters typically we put more this year with our home delivery but um we we can turn them in after five, six years and they only have 30,000 miles on them. So we get a really high rate, uh, either sell them outright or get a trade in on them to trade back up. So that's what we like to do is every five or six years, we'll trade equipment back in. Okay. So at the beginning, you said you started with cheap equipment and started with very bootstrapping that equipment. Talk to us about kind of like, what are the key uh, parts for equipment that you started with? Well, when I started with the first thing I bought was a BCS walk behind tractor, you know, with a rototiller and a mower with it. And that's what I basically was my primary and secondary tillage for quite a number of years as I went into it, probably the first four or five years. That's what we did. Up to four acres. Up to four acres, believe it or not. And then, but I also had a, an old Farmall 200 tricycle tractor that, uh, helped us with moving wagons around and, and did, uh, you know, a little bit of, of work in the fields, but it wasn't all that uh, useful uh, because it was light. It was so lightweight. So those were the two tractors. And we also bought up uh, international 400, which helped us with chopping hay and again, bigger for bigger wagons. And, and so it did, it did some, and, and a bigger set of discs and things like that. So it helped us in, in some ways, but in 97 was when we finally bought, a uh, small compact Ford tractor that had uh, the ability to run a tractor mounted a three point hitch uh, tiller and had a front end loader. It was the first time we had that. And, and we took out a loan to get that. And that like catapulted us uh, ahead, but it also came at the time when we were here almost for the 10 years. And in those 10 years, we had paid off the mortgages of, of uh, being here. So after that, you could see where we were kind of slow because we were uh, had young kids and was spending time with that. We were trying to build our house and we had expenses there. We had expenses uh, just paying off all these mortgages that we had. And so once we got past that, uh, you know, that's where we really started investing in equipment and, and uh, buildings that were really going to pay us back. But we kind of had to sit on our sit on our hands for a little bit till we got past all this uh this debt that we first had started out with yeah you we know. did the the land we only did 10 years on the land so we got everything paid off basically within 10 years okay because at the beginning i mean your wash and pack was just a a lean to <laughs> it was just a lead to that we spent 200 bucks on yeah and, and nine, that that lasted until 95 when we decided to put a, an addition on our washing station because we were pushing 
the May sales and the October sales. And that was pretty cold to be out there mm -hmm. at 30 degrees and the wind blowing through. And so we ended up with a, with an enclosed wash station with some garage doors that opened up, uh, let the sun in during the, when it was warm and, but then closed down when it was cold. And that was our first major building expansion that cost about $7,000. All the work was, it was done for, by ourselves. But that was the first farm thing we did. You know, our own house here, we built in two stages. In 91, 92, we built our original house. And we did it ourselves with my father. And then in 97, we built the, like you said, the apartment. And uh, also added on to our house by having garages and stuff. So, yes, we have skills in plumbing, electrical, building, you name it. We, 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 came, we came into farming with major skills. Okay, so that's key too. Is that instead of you know having to hire an a electrician and wait for an electrician, like out here, it's literally like two weeks out before you can get someone to come to your house for a lot of these trades. So you're able to just to do that yourself. And obviously, what I've picked up too, like when we did our our mushroom house here, I was able to do all the work myself, which saved again massive amounts of money and allowed me to do it the way I wanted it. Um, but now you actually hire that stuff out because now you're at a different stage in your farm. So I guess the thing is to think about is, you know, at those beginning stages, you're going to bootstrap like crazy for a lot of things. But as the farm matures and as you get more of that flywheel effect and just more cash rolling in, it makes it a lot easier for it to just spend the kind of money. And so you can just focus, I mean, on what you want to on the farm, do what you really want to do and, uh, and just more enjoy life. Yeah, it also comes down to that point of what I've learned over the years is the more time I spend on my plants, the more money I make. So if I put up a crappy building and it didn't last very long and I spent time having to fix it all the time, that is opportunity taken away from getting something transplanted at the right time, staked, picked, weeded, you know, out in the fields. So this is where if I put up really good buildings, then I don't have to spend any time on them after that. We'll, we'll front the money put up something really good. And then from there, there's no maintenance to it. And that's how we've kind of worked all of our buildings. So I'm still spending more time with our plants that make us more money. Also, Michael, I think one thing that was key we didn't mention is in our startup years, we had Paul's parents that lived nearby. They were 20 minutes away. And as you know, Brian, his dad was mm -hmm. really key in helping us build stuff because he had built several houses himself. So he it was the three of us that, you know, did a lot of the construction builder houses. I've, I've been involved in construction my whole life as well. So, and then uh, Paul's uh, stepmom, Ann, she was just key helping us with the kids here three days a week. So we were so fortunate and blessed to have them nearby. And it, that was a really important part of, you know, us being able to get the farm up and going. Yeah, it's never just one thing. It's usually a sum of many, many parts yeah. that work together. Yeah, we yeah. have that top 10 things of, you know, what made our farm successful. So that's support system. So obviously there needs to be a personal support system for your family, but then you also build the community support around like, you know, because I remember Paul, like when you were doing some plowing and when I was, you actually went and borrowed a plow from Stevie. Um, so having those those connections too, to be able to do that. And that's one thing we're trying in here in Ohio is built very rapidly as a support system. And we've met some great people, which has been fabulous. Um, but having that support for the family, because I know farmers that, they're young, they're in their 30s, they have a, a three-year-old and a one-year-old and a five-year-old and they're trying to farm and they're hours from their family. And 
And sometimes I tell them, look, you got to really be, really think hard about this because the stress you're putting on yourselves and your family is immense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Still seemed like it was there no matter what, but it definitely made it easier by having family to help us and uh, good neighbors who did uh -huh. anything for us. They would babysit the kids. They did errands for us. They mowed our lawn. They did all kinds of every. A lot of people, it was a real community thing to come together and help us get this farm up and going. Yeah, we could even announce in church if we had a really bad couple of weeks and we had just, I remember one time we had like a greenhouse full of transplants and we asked in church one Sunday morning that if there was anybody that could come help us for a few hours in the afternoon and a bunch of people came out and it was just such a wonderful mm. thing to have community, uh, you know, people and friends, you know, come and help you when you really need it. Yeah. Let's talk um, your advice to new farmers. Because again, you work with a lot of new farmers, again, with the interns and speaking at conferences. What would you say your one biggest piece of advice to a new farmer would be? My biggest thing would be to go to conferences, listen to webinars, listen to podcasts, which of course we were laughing at earlier that does everybody really know what a podcast is in our generation? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, farm visits and just networking with people is I think so, so key to, to learning and work with extension, you know, become a member of your cooperative extension and use them uh, to help you out. Don't be afraid to ask when you, you know, need help. Uh, mentoring programs are fantastic. Uh, interns, you know, we've had, as you said, we've had a lot of them on the farm. And I think if you have an opportunity to work on a farm, even if it's for a few weeks, I think you can just learn a lot if you can find a farm that's nearby that, uh, you know, is a, is a good farm. Yeah. I think on the practical end, you know, again, I would tell them about the thing that's most important marketing business and then growing to make sure that that's always stays where it is. And also to have these skills, but also when you're out there looking for property, they've got to have a list of things that are, uh, real priority of whether or not that piece of property is the right one. So I give them advice on what really to look for that. But it's also within yourself. I remember talking to uh, a couple and they were in their 40s just getting into farming. And so I'm listening to their story of how they're getting started and how, you know, they seem like they're really excited. And I just asked them one question in the end. I said, when you're out doing something really mundane, like picking beans and weeding the peas or whatever you're doing, I said, what are you thinking about? And her immediate response was, how can we do this better? And I said, and I said you're going to do just fine. Because if you're always looking to improve, no matter what it is, you're going to do just fine farming. I mean, you can't just sit on your laurels and say, well, I've learned it so I can do the same thing for the next 10 years. Uh, this farm ourselves is a, is a changing all the time we're changing marketing we're changing how we grow things we're changing our employee mix up we're changing everything all the time is you know the washing stage changes all the time so this is where the constant improvements even after 30 some years it's never static so mm -hmm. you know you got to have that attitude of positive also within you and you know is that some kind of advice too that you know when something goes wrong do you lament or do you immediately think about going to plan B? Yeah. You know, you've got to have that attitude. 
Yeah, there was actually a farmer on Facebook that had a a windstorm and uh, a a tree collapsed and hit their greenhouse. And then their pigs got out because the same storm, you know, dropped some uh, mm-hmm. on their fence. And I don't know if he listens to this, but I'm going to give him my, my advice because I asked him in the thread, I was like, what are your takeaways? What are your lessons from this? I said, there, every single thing that goes wrong, there's going to be a lesson for you. And it's the lessons that you take away and that the things you think about that allow you to make sure that this doesn't happen next time. And there was a boatload of them. The biggest one was, um, your, your, your tunnel was way too close to the trees. If the trees could literally, a limb could snap and destroy it. So you've got to get your fields bigger, cut those trees back, give yourself that space. The second one is uh, vegetable and animal farms have a very hard time mixing, especially when you're very small. Um, so the other thing would be like a better fence. <laughs> because the, the the pigs went through and literally, I mean, thousands and thousands of dollars in damage, just, you know, rooted right through the greenhouses, all of that. You know how that's a food safety hazard too. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, I obviously don't know the whole situation, just seeing a few pictures is what I was able to pull that from. So obviously there's probably more information to pull to that, but um, I think you're absolutely right, Paul. And I think the other thing, Michael, we touched on a little bit with um, with finances, but a key thing that we have always said is have a really good farm accountant. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we listen to a lot of other, um, who's one up in Vermont that does, you know, the books and the finances. Richard and all Wiswell. Richard Wiswall, you know, he's, he's fantastic, has had a lot of great things. But we have a farm accountant and we always meet with them in December, figure out, you know, where we sit do we need to spend more money in December or can we wait and spend it in January, like all of our seeds so that we can reduce our taxes? So I think a farm accountant is actually just a really, really key thing to, uh, for anybody, any new, old, any, anytime you should have a good farm accountant. Yeah. And Richard actually was on episode 29 of the thriving farmer podcast. So folks can go back and listen to him. And he talked about those exact things. It's just the business is the, the finances, how to make it all work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Well, well, Paul and Sandy, thank you so much for coming on. Is there a question you wish I had asked that I didn't? Boy, uh, question you didn't ask. Well, we didn't talk about the family too much, but I think, you know, family is really, really key to any farm. And I think we're just blessed having a family that is, you know, all everybody's pitching in and helping with it. And as we get older, uh, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with our farm. So, uh, Stay tuned on that. And uh, we are looking for, you know, somebody to take it over at some point. Yeah. It's a beautiful farm. Thank you, Michael. Paul? Anything? No, no, no. Last you, no. you didn't talk about the root cellar. <laughs> I didn't talk about the root cellar. I didn't talk about the high tunnels either, but we have them. Yeah, all the storage, <laughs> all the storage areas that we have that we keep crops and stuff. So well yeah. I think yeah, I mean like that's obviously we could do a we could do 20 episodes and still not unpack everything. But you know I think the thing is with those just to kind of wrap that up is that you have built yourself systems that allows you to store literally tens of thousands of pounds of food year round which has made your winter markets incredibly easy. So I know one of the things that we struggled with is having like eight different storage places and them just hobnob together, which made it incredibly stressful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah so- we, we built, you know, some of the things we did in the beginning, I, I kind of shake my head and say, why? I can't imagine I was really thinking that far ahead because the first thing we built was a barn with a, with a uh, root cellar in it. 
And I didn't know really where I was going with it, but I just did it. And it really, when 2006, you know, we always kind of up until 2006, kind of put stuff in there and, and had this, you know, jerry-rigged system to kind of keep it cool during the middle of winter, but it would get too warm during the spring. But it, it, we just stored stuff that was just extra. And then we would sell it in May. Well, when 2006 happened and we went into uh, full-blown winter growing, we already had a, uh, a root cellar and all we did was we put it in a formal cooling system. And, but we were the only ones with it in the whole area. And so all the farmers came and stored their stuff in our root cellar and we all filled it up. And every year it gave them an ability to a year to uh, get their own system going. And so if you, you know, went right off or away and then an, just down the road, another year, another one dropped out, another one dropped out. Then as I was growing more and filling it more, you know, I was given more space. So mm -hmm. it was great to uh, have a community where we could help the other young farmers around and, and also uh, had systems where we didn't have to build a whole building. All we had to do was just put in a formal cooling. And that holds 24 tons. So we, we're filling that up right now. We still have some more harvesting to do. So we have that and we have a warm room um yeah and we have a cooler we, we have, have a cooler and yeah, we put a cool bot in this year for the first time ever and it had the room for tomatoes so that was kind of fun yes well you actually helped um uh ron coleslaw you know way back in the day you know we, we knew him before he was famous and sold sold the cool bot company um, oh yeah he was, he was a character yeah we really loved working with ron and his wife yep yeah when they were growing when they were trying to figure out how to grow yep they were yeah. the ones, they were the, the probably one of our funnest ones because he asked us to come down and mentor him. He took us around his farm and he said, okay, tell me what I'm doing. Am I doing anything right? Just t tell me what I need to do. And, uh, <laughs> so it was fine. We told him to cut his production in half and, uh, and he might be profitable because he wasted so much land and just didn't take care of anything. And, and, mm -hmm. and it was great. Well, I think it's interesting because the thing about Ron was Ron was really a dreamer and a tinkerer and I mean, a brilliant mind because he invented, I mean, the electric G was his thing. And then he obviously invented the cool bot and that's where he really ended up making his money when he sold that company. But yeah, I mean, there's the thing is like, it takes all types of us to make the, the movement move forward. And, and he was a far better tinkerer than he was a farmer, but his yeah. wife was a good farmer. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so many people have been in the movement of agriculture and, and going forward with it. So yeah, it's uh, it's great and it's keep moving. It keeps going forward. Yeah, uh, I mean the advances in just the last couple of years. Yeah, mm -hmm. and changes mm -hmm. this year with COVID and marketing and online stuff because we moved to an online. I know we didn't talk about that, but we could do a whole thing on that. Wait, wait till next year when we know what we're really doing. But yeah, we went all online and home delivery this year. Um, it's been pretty amazing. Well, and then one of the things Robert said, and I don't think he said on the podcast because he was still very new to the system, but it, again, because Robert and I talk back and forth a lot. We work with his company a lot for a lot of our installs for the, the technology, of course. Um, but he was talking about like the first week you guys did the home delivery, you're, you're at an error rate of, I think, I don't know, maybe he said 12%. And it took like 10 minutes or 12 minutes per order to put it all together. Uh, yes. <laughs> and then he was saying, like, he would keep sharing the numbers and sharing the new systems. And eventually he sent me a video and he showed me, like, we are down to like a 1% error. And we now are packing the order. And it was with two minutes or something crazy like that. 
But, you know, I think it, it comes back to kind of like to wrap this all up is this, I think one thing you said, Paul, is this the obsessive aspect of how are we going to make this better? How can we move forward? How can we make this more efficient? Can we grow better? How can we get the better variety? How can we serve our customers better through the sales aspect? And that's what's made you guys successful over, you know, 30 plus years. Yeah, it's just some, just some basic principles like that of, of not being satisfied with where you're at, but it's not, not something to drive yourself crazy, but it's yeah. just that uh, customers are always expecting you to be on the cutting edge, you know, of whatever's going on. When they mention something, they want to know where I'm at with it. And they always realize that I'm in the front. Of yeah. It. And this year with our, you know, with the changes, uh, you know, our gross is way up and now we're sitting around going, okay, now what are we going to do? How do we kind of pull pull the reins back in on this. Uh, because the funny thing is, Michael, when we did this trip, uh, it was to kind of figure out how do we slow the farm down so that Paul and I don't have to work so much. And we came back from this trip and you realize we were way over in the South Seas when Robert started all this online thing with COVID in, in March, we weren't home yet. And uh, we came back and he's like, he had this whole system up and going. And, and he's like, we got to grow more. We have to grow more. And we're like, no, wait a minute. <laughs> we were supposed to be slowing down. So it's been a crazy year for us. Um, and uh, we we'll just have to wait and see what we're going to decide we're going to do next year. Okay. Well, I'm sure we can have you back on again in a couple of years and find out that too. We'd yeah. love to have that, Michael. And again, we thank you so much for uh, having us and inviting us. We're really honored. Yeah. And I, you know, it's Paul and Sandy. I, I mean, I've, I tell, say this often, but I would never have had the impact I've had. Well, never been the farmer I was, but never had the impact I have now with, you know, over a hundred episodes of the podcast and just, you know, working with, you know, we have a, a list, we've reached over 50,000 farmers a week now with uh, the wow. different medias we have. So I would, again, you were the, the cause of that. And I just want to, again, just there's farmers all across the world that are thank you because you, you've directly impacted what I do every day. Oh, well, right. thank you, Michael. And well, you've definitely impacted us and we've learned a yeah. lot from you as well. Yeah, I'm glad we could share. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Right. Thank right, you, Michael. Michael. Thank you. Looking to start or grow your farm business? You need a compelling farm plan that you can share with investors, convince your significant other with, or just to give yourself peace of mind. We have created a new program called the Start Your Farm Intensive. In it, you'll learn how to develop your farm idea to make sure you take all the factors into consideration for your context and your climate. You'll learn how to craft a one-page business plan that helps clearly define your target customer and lay out the necessary characteristics of your business. You will understand the three financial documents that every farm needs to fill out to make sure you are making money. And we'll give you all that as templates too. So you have the templates to fill out for your farm business. We'll also go through funding. So where to go for funding for the various stages and parts of your business. Starting a farm is hard. Starting a farm without a proven plan is almost impossible. Join us today. Go to growingfarmers.com forward slash start for more information. Now, what did past students have to say? Corey says, the exercises and spreadsheets helped me make the learning process easier and more real. Jenna says, I gained the support system and resources I needed for when I'm ready for the next step. And finally, the worksheets make you think out every aspect of the business step by step. Go ahead, join us today, growingfarmers.com forward slash start.
All right. So next week on the podcast, we have Jordan and Adam from Texas Fungus. Now, it's a fascinating interview. They started in January of 2019, and both are now full-time on the mushroom farm. And they pivoted because of COVID and when they lost 100% of their sales, which was about 500 pounds a week of mushrooms. So they pivoted completely to retail sales. So you're going to hear about the varieties. You're going to hear about the mushroom growing process. You're going to see here how they are the most urban farm in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and all the particulars on how they've made mushroom growing a business for them. So join us next week. We'll talk to Adam and Jordan. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.